Welcome to Tomorrow's People, the podcast brought to you by Personio and me, Perry Timms. Everything starts with people. Now, my guest on this episode is normally on the other side of the microphone because he has a very successful podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. And we're going to touch on that during today's conversation. But I'm really pleased because we've got on the other side of the microphone, Bruce Daisley. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Do you do much on the other side of the mic? A little bit here and there. Okay. On, on Zoom stuff, especially, yeah. you know, sort of, I generally try and say yes. So, you know, I'll do like a student's podcast. Oh, nice. I'll do, um, you know, just someone who started off their own bedroom project podcast. I, I try and say yes to people who contact me. Very nice. How long's yours been on the go for now? Probably about six years, actually. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And it's a kind of busy market, isn't it? Yeah. When, much? when I started, so I started my podcast. I was working at Twitter and, and it was an act of subversion, if truth be told. Um, the, the, the culture at Twitter, I love workplace culture. I'm obsessed with it. I think if you've worked in a team that's got good culture... And then you find yourself sort of moving to something that doesn't feel the same. You, you miss it and, right. and you become evangelical about it. And so I'd worked <laughs> both in good cultures elsewhere. And then when we first set up Twitter in the UK, the culture would, had been extraordinary. And when it went into a period that wasn't as good, I started this podcast as partly like a gentle act of resistance against messages coming from headquarters. It's like, wow. I'm just going to do this at my weekends. I'm going to sort of focus my energy on it. And not just as a process of self-learning. Yeah. And um, and it became, unexpectedly, it became like number one business podcast. Wow. And so I thought, well, I'll just lean into it and do yeah. more. Yeah. I like, I like the act that it felt like it was rebellious, but it wasn't like a direct act of conflict. Mm. Felt like it was an outlet for you on all the things that you want to uh, talk about, think about, and share with people. It, precisely that. So right. there were little things along the way. So um, when I discovered the research about open plan offices, it was like this penny drop moment for me because right. we all at the time were all in open plan offices and it felt like, well, this is the best way to be, right? And then you suddenly see the research that says, if you go to open plan from closed offices, emails go up 60 face-to-face wow. -face conversation goes down three quarters. You're like, oh, I, that's not what I imagined. And so it became um, this real passion project where it's like, okay, the way we've organised work right now seems superficially common sense-based, but actually it's not in the service of nice. making work better for us. Really. Nice. So it's kind of an awakening and at a point in time that was, uh, I guess, an outlet for you and now it's just become an ongoing thing. Right? Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it. So, okay. you know, it's it's a constant thing. You know, I often get people approaching me saying, do you want to come on? And it's more the people I'm inclined towards having on as if someone's done some research that I'm intrigued uh, by, yeah. something I've never heard about before. Because mm. there's so much brilliant leadership stuff out there already. There's so much other stuff that covers the ground mm. really effectively. Mm. I'm always like, um, I'm curious about like little dark areas in the in the yeah. corners that haven't been investigated. I know what you mean. Very nice. So what's the Bruce Daisley story then? How did you get to that point? As you say, you started this when you were at Twitter, but what's the kind of backstory of you? Uh, gosh, right. Okay. So yeah, so I worked, you know, so, so sort of going from most recent backwards. Mm. I, I worked at Twitter. Prior to Twitter, I worked at YouTube. I sort of helped set up YouTube in the UK. Prior to that, I'd worked in radio and publishing. And in truth, when I got the opportunity to go and work at Google, I 
I think like a lot of people, firstly, flattered to get an opportunity to work for Google. But because I'd seen it describe itself as like the best work culture in the world, best place to work, I thought, oh, right, well, you know, I've always had a curiosity about this. This is like, I'm getting a golden ticket to go into yes. Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Yeah, like, yes. I'm going to go in. And when it didn't live up to that, ah. um, I was really intrigued. I was like, okay, yeah. so it's, <laughs> it's advertised as the best workplace culture yeah. place. And actually everyone... He's in a sort of managed state of depression, oh, really. Wow. That they can't necessarily reconcile the fact that they've got all of these material benefits, yeah. but they don't feel motivated. They don't feel yeah. inspired. No one yeah. feels like they're doing their best ever work. Wow. And so I was like, I was really struck by the dissonance yeah. there. Because yeah. you expect when like a job like Google, you think, wow, these are people are get I'll, I'll give you the perfect example. The one I always talk about is that um Google used to really heavily promote the idea that their culture had this magical 70-20-10 quality to it. Yep. Now, I'll remind you of this because it was like part of their origin story. 70% of your time would be spent on your main job, 20% of your time on any project that you agreed with your boss, 10% of your time you could do whatever you wanted, right. didn't even have to tell your boss. Yeah, yeah. So immediately you get the job there. And this was this was in their IPO document. It was in all this, yeah. all the business articles they would see at the time. So you, you get a job there and you think, wow, have I even got big enough ideas to think about? You know, like I'd be thinking all the time, what could I do in my 10% time? What could I do in my 20% time? Anyway, I was really struck when I joined. No one was talking about it. And so, you know, I'd occasionally say to people, oh, what are you doing in your 10% time? And they say, um... What's that? Yeah. And so right. I, anyway, it was only a few minutes in. I started thinking, oh, all right, maybe it's an engineering thing. I was in the commercial world. Maybe it's an engineering thing. And then I eventually sort of chat to an engineer over lunch. They said, all right, yeah, yeah, 20% time. We call it Saturday. Oh. And I realized, okay, wow. Yeah. They're sort of using this mythology, yeah. claiming that their culture is materially different. And it's misdirection, I think, yeah. is the charitable way you could look at it. So, so, yeah, that I became obsessed with it. So, so yeah. prior to that, I'd worked in uh, radio and publishing. I got my first job um, by, I grew up in a cancer state in Birmingham. Um, my dad was too ill to work. So I got my first job by drawing a cartoon CV. Wow. And so I'm always, the thing I always say, like if I do speakers for school or I do anything, I always say to people, <laughs> if someone said to you, there's a path of communication, um, <laughs> that's a direct line to anyone and these fully unused. Um, it's astonishing that no one uses it. And I I'm, I always say to people, if you want to get a job at you know a dream employer, for me, it was a record company, but yeah. whether that's yeah. TikTok or Snapchat yeah. or whatever, yeah. you know, BBC, yeah. write them a letter. Nice. Because no one receives any post these days. No True. one receives any post. True. You know, so like if, if it was me right now and I was – an yeah. 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid trying to get work experience somewhere. Personally, I would I would get something printed on a balloon, yeah. I'd put in a cardboard box, I would send it to yeah. delivery to someone uh, because I guarantee they'll receive it. Yeah. And, you know, we live in a world where oh. people think, oh, I'll, I'll send them a message on either an email or on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. You're never going to stand no. out. That. So, you know, for wow. me, drawing this cartoon CV was transform my life wow what a lovely way to think about it so a little bit of art but also again a bit of a subvertive kind mm. of act really and yeah. rebelliousness um so the podcast is eat sleep work repeat and that's continuing and then you've written a couple of books uh, the joy of work which i think uh, brought you to my attention um and, and, and I shared something in that because I've had a terrific work experience. I joined the civil service. I was from a council estate in Northampton um, just down the road from you. 
and work's been good to me. It's helped me realise who I am and what I'm here for. And, and, and yet I guess you're seeing that there are lots of people either solve the myth or just don't find the magic formula. And I've almost made that my mission and it seems like that's what you're trying to do mm. as well. You're trying to create a space where people can find something. Would that be right? Yeah, and, yeah. and for most people, working or not working is not a choice. Yeah. So, you know, it's really interesting, Perry. Right now, um, certainly there's been growth of like this anti-work movement mm-hmm. over the course of... Certainly exists in Reddit forums, in TikTok... And it's this notion that work is a bad deal for people. Mm. Um, and I can see that, you know, most certainly someone starting in the workforce now might find themselves thinking, I'm never going to be able to afford a house. I'm never going to be able to aspire mm. to get myself into the position my mum and dad got themselves mm. into, actually. Yeah. And so I can recognise that. But broadly for most people, work is... Um, Firstly, it's an essential part of, of surviving. But secondly, it gives you a sense of meaning and worth. Yeah. So it's really, I've wrestled with the idea of trying to make work better. Yeah. Is it trying to sort of create this sugar pill for, yeah. for capitalism? Are you just trying to to yeah. do the system's job for it? But it's I've, I've never felt like that, really. I've felt when people have got a job, like your experience, like my experience, where they can get up, they can go to work, they can laugh with colleagues. Yeah. They can feel some sort of sense of fulfilment, yeah. some sense that their job matters to people. Yeah. I think it can it's life enhancing. We can see evidence on that. People who don't have jobs generally have worse mental health mm. and worse health outcomes mm. than people who do. There's so. an esteem creation <laughs> thing. Um, I guess what I'm thinking uh, now is that if work is demonised, and yes, you're right, the capitalist system has probably made it harder for people to see their path to things that work can get for them, then you're right, it comes back to this inner sense of something. It's like, what's my value in the world then? What changes do I make in people's lives? And that's that meaning factor. And that's coming through quite a lot isn't it now mm. in, in narrative and in some of it is corporate slogan and propaganda as 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 you've described already uh, on this uh, episode but but some of it is companies want to create a space where people can become themselves and thrive and so on yeah how do you find them though i mean what 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 are you looking for as an indicator of mm, that's got promise do you see that yeah for me this probably I take a big issue with some of the ways that we generally think about this. So I don't yeah. really believe mission and purpose is a big driver for most employees. Right. I believe identity is the big driver. Identity, yeah. And I'll tell you specifically how mm. I think about that. It's because I've worked in a lot of bars and restaurants. I've mm. worked in a lot of places that weren't best in their sector. And quite often when we find ourselves talking about purpose, we often find that it's this august august thing that we say oh our objective is to be the best in this sector to yeah. let me tell you i've worked in a lot of places that never had that ambition but based on where we were based on the team who were there we wanted to provide the best service we could there and yeah. for that moment and so the way you'd find expression for that you're in a restaurant team someone's feeling unwell everyone's like don't worry we'll cover for you yeah. and everyone sort of pulls together there's yeah. a sense of sort of collect yeah. collective identity mm-hmm. look We'll, we're going to make sure that you can go home today. Mm. And I think it's that about that mm. group identity. Now, mm. as soon as you start, for me, this is a really critical difference, mm. that any team can feel a, a sense of group identity mm. if they feel like we've all got the same values, we've all got the same interests. Mm. I, I personally, like I've done stuff with big companies where they say our job is... Our mission, our purpose, is to let the kids of the world play freely. Yeah. It's washing powder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, 
I don't buy that anyone no. who works there believes that. Yeah. And, you know, I guarantee the te- the proof point of that is that when they go home and their mum says to them, what's the what's the, <laughs> the goal of your firm? They don't say to their mum, our goal is to let the kids of the world play freely. Because firstly, even if their mum smiled, their brothers and sisters would, yeah, would smirk. However, you know, their job can be, we've got a really strong team we're doing we, yeah. and, and we're focused on what the team can accomplish. And yeah. I think it's a nuance, but for me, it's really critical. Um, so I personally, I lean yeah. slightly like, more into believing it's about team. collective identity than yeah. I do about um, mission and purpose personally. Racing through my mind were not only uh, slogans and, and, and mission statements, as you rightly say, because some of them do feel a bit like faux noble, right? Mm. They're trying to create this bigger sense of something, but it's like, yeah, but you just make this. So uh, to your point there. But then I really love what you've sort of put out there about teams. My experience of teams in the past working in the civil service and on projects and so on, thrown together mixture of experiences, some of them brilliant, some of them where you're like, I'm not really sure anybody's got my back in this mm. team. And I'm sure you've seen both Absolutely. versions, right? Yeah. Um, but I do love this sense that actually when you create that bond, that's it because it's near to people, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I've just written a book now, um, mm. which Fortitude, which is sort of about resilience, really. So my, my first book was about, my first book really was <clears throat> in the course of doing the podcast for, at that time for like three years. I'd, I'd seen so many bits of psychology that I felt no one in work was seeing. You know, it wasn't wasn't reaching people sitting at desks. Mm. And so the first book was about that. Second book is about this word that we hear all the time, resilience, yeah. you know. And it's sort of a really interesting phrase. And the reason why I became so intrigued with it is that firstly, um, the word resilience has got a degree of victim blaming to it mm. in the sense that normally the people we ask to be resilient, resilient are the people who have been knocked down. So, you know, so... You know, people have been the victims of something and someone says, well, you need to be a bit more resilient. The example I'll give you is that um, during the course of the pandemic, do you remember right in sort of that first melee of the first eight months, all the A-levels were cancelled. Oh, yeah. And in the first round of that, um, A-levels were cancelled and the results were churned out. They didn't want there to be any grade inflation. So results were churned out by an algorithm. And so what happened was kids who'd been on track to get AAB were predicted, if they went to state school and the class was over 30 kids, uh, they were getting like D-U-E. And uh, and they, these kids were heartbroken. I was on this radio phone-in with Robert Peston and I was talking about it and Robert Peston was talking. And uh, Robert Peston said, I think it's just about time that kids should be more resilient. I thought, wow, wow. you know, hang on. Yeah. We've told kids for the whole 11, 12, 13 years they're studying, you better work hard to get hard results. Then when the system fails them, mm. our response is, so these kids have been knocked down, our response is get back up. Yeah. And I thought, wow, actually, it's a really unempathetic response. Now yeah. it was resolved, right? Yeah. And they, they got the A-level results that were predicted. Mm. But I thought, right, quite often, in mm. fact, I saw someone tweet and someone said resilience is silence, mm. meaning you're told to be resilient when someone's saying, I'm not too bothered about what misfortune you've experienced right right now, but demonstrate to me that it's not going to hold you back. Yeah. Right, that's really interesting. So it's like, it, and as soon as you see that interpretation, yeah. it's a bit politicised. So what happens right now in work is that we've got this burnout epidemic. Everyone's exhausted. And what bosses are doing is saying, we need a resilience course. Not saying, hang on, 
Why are people more burnt out than ever before? Yeah. Can we change our working practices? So, yeah. you know, some of the things we'll see is that the average number of meetings has grown exponentially. Yep. The average number of emails has grown exponentially. Rather than thinking, is there a way to reduce that? Mm. Can we re-engineer work so we change our working practices? Rather than that, it's like, oh, well, can we get some paint yeah. and it, it layer on a layer yeah. of resilience training over the top? Yeah. And I think, yeah. anyway, so... No, I, found, I, I found myself researching that. But what you find at the heart of it, there's a couple of individualistic yeah. ways to resilience. But the one that is paramount for me is that resilience is normally the strength we draw from each other. Resilience is a sense, witness the people in Ukraine. Yeah. Resilience is a sense, sense we're all in it together. Yeah. And as soon as you see that, you're like, okay, right. We've been sort of given this misdirection that resilience is this individualistic thing and actually it's a bit more complicated than that mm. the sort of phrase du jour is that doesn't sit right with me and resilience as an individual as you say almost like victim mindset of well it's up to you to be resilient has never sat right mm. with me um i've had a lot of optimism and ideology and enthusiasm throughout my life and yet when I've been hit hard, I've looked at myself and gone, well, is that you not being resilient enough? And I've done a little bit of that self-blaming thing. But I love a comment that was made by a guy called David Marquet, who wrote Turn This Ship Around about his experiences on the US uh, Navy submarine Santa Fe, where he said, we've got to stop fixing people and fix the system, which is what you just described there. And I wonder whether this strength we draw from each other is an archetype of teams that has probably been around forever, but we've sort of lost it a bit. We've sort of lost that draw the strength from each other solo based targets and rewards right that kind of thing when was the last time we saw like team based target and and reward systems they don't seem to be as prevalent do they so maybe the system of work is is kind of separating us out from that and making it difficult to be together and draw strength from each other which is perhaps where work is suffering from the sort of as you say affliction and pandemic of burnout and so on on top of the anxieties in the world so yeah you, you took me to a good place there this podcast is brought to you by personio personio is the all-in-one hr solution for now and the future we help hr teams recruit onboard manage pay and develop employees more efficiently and our easy-to-use solution works across every part of the employee lifecycle. Automate your people processes and gain time back for more impactful work, like creating your people strategy. After all, everything starts with people. To find out what Personio can do for you and your business, head to personio.com. That's P-E-R-S-O-N-I-O.com. some wonderful work done by a psychologist who passed away this year, a woman called Sigal Barside oh, nice from, uh, from Wharton University. And she used to talk about this thing, which is often quite absent in American discussions about culture. Quite often, if you see Americans um, writing about it and, and, and talking about it, they often describe culture as like the, the <laughs> highway code, the, yeah. the sort of wiring document. It's how we understand that we interact with each other. Whereas Sigal Barside talks about companionate love, yeah. that in great cultures, and she looks, at, even for an American, she looks at cricket teams and she looks at firefighters and she looks, she says, in great teams, there's a there's a fondness with people. There's, yeah. there's a connection. There's yeah. a sort of, there's a, a brotherhood, sorority, yeah. that yeah. they they feel a bond to each other. Yeah. And in her 
research, she says it actually leads to more accountability. Yeah. It's not like, oh, we're, we're all buddies, so we're all going to pull a yeah. slacker. Actually, mm. we sort of, we've got this fondness with each other. I think that's a really critical mm. thing. Good cultures normally create this really cohesive bond that we do feel part of something together. Mm. And I think that talks to a a near mission for that team, right? Not the corporate propaganda Mm. slogan, but something where people go, what are we here for? And I've seen it because I've researched lots of self-managed systems where you you bring that accord yourself. You kind of go, we've got to work it out. We haven't got somebody telling us Mm. how to behave. So I wonder whether there's some clues that we can follow on this, not only from your work, which talks about perhaps the psychodynamic of it, but in the systems and the interpretations that people have played with. So I, I love saw, that. Yeah, I saw something brilliant, which was, um, mm. and I'm, I'm always cautious about sort of the, the wisdom of billionaires, but yeah. there was something in, um, there was a book this last year called Working Backwards, which was about the culture of Amazon. And it said, <clears throat> in, the, in the original version of Amazon's culture, mm. uh, Jeff Bezos said he wanted to create teams that were so autonomous they didn't need to communicate with each other. Mm. And he said, I want teams to communicate via API mm. rather than... Wow. Now, that's really interesting, simply because so much of our time with a team... Yeah. He's taken up with, we've got to communicate to yeah. everyone. We'll go, okay, have you socialised this? Have you shared yeah. this with other teams? And he recognised, which I think most of us can identify, he recognised that was like a gravitational pull. Yeah. If you've got to tell other teams what you're doing all the time, yeah. it effectively means that as the organisation gets bigger, there's so much time taken up in meetings yeah. and communication. And so his recognition there was, if you've got a team of 6, 12, 20 people, and they can be sort of self-determining and really focused. You can move quickly. Yeah. You can get incredible... Man- it's really energising mm. because everyone's got a role to play. So mm. how effectively you can implement that, I don't know. But there is yeah. some real insight in that. I think. There is, isn't there? Yeah. Um, you've got me thinking about lots of examples around it. But, but I guess what we are fighting against is a little bit how you described your little subversion initially it's like the system we kind of bounce off it sometimes and we probably feel like we are small cogs in a large machine and if we just grind to a halt the whole thing carries on without us and grinds us down almost yet what you're describing in fortitude is the strength we draw from each other so maybe there's something we're missing so i'm liking the fact that you're kind of spotlighting that for people Mm. um so, so what are you working on right now that's like really important to you? What kind of projects have you got going on? Even if they're kind of more passion plays, I just wonder what keeps your attention and, and, and excitement going in the work you're doing. Yeah, so I'm still just at the back end of, of promoting that book. book. So so the, the book came out in August. Yeah. and um, So I'm still just at the, the back end of, of talking about that. Um, I used to work at Twitter and so I've spent oh. the last month doing you know people contact i generally try and say yes to everything Mm. so people contact me saying do you want to talk about twitter so you know uh, i spent a lot of time doing that yeah probably i'm going to start thinking next about what i can what i can focus my attention on. i'm really interested in um in research about neighborhood now that that might be sort of a strange thing and it might go into something adjacent but the idea um someone said to me Someone said to me, there's a strange thing that correlates with happiness is that happiness is bumping into people without needing to prearrange it. And so like, if you can bump in... Now, a lot of us maybe have got a sort of conflictive relationship with neighbourhood in the sense that we don't want to be best friends with our next-door neighbours. We don't want to be best friends with the people around us. But maybe there's some lost magic in Mm. being near to your friends. That, you know, so often we're used to moving out of necessity and maybe finding ourselves moving further than we want. 
And mm. I think it's got an application for work yeah. because one of the things that you notice is that organisations that say, okay, we've got an anchor day where everyone's in the office together yeah. or two anchor days where they seem to be achieving better workplace culture mm. than those organisations that say, yeah. pick your day, yeah. come in whatever day you want. Yeah. And people come in and all be, it's got more autonomy to it. Yeah. It's a lonelier experience. True. So I'm just interested in... Yeah, I don't know if there's anything in it. I'm interested in the research about that. I, I would, I would echo that. And I was on a podcast last week, and I talked about Tony Shea uh, mm. principle of organisations are like cities, mm. and 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 he said nobody orders you around in the city. You find it, and you find your place, and you socialise, and so on. So I'm I'm kind of intrigued by that because I guess we have seen with social networks the explosion of online communities to the point that it almost became too much. Didn't mm. it? It's like I'm on, you know, I'm in so many threads and chats. I don't know how to keep up with it. Mm. And I think you're right. I think we've probably rediscovered the sense of connection, but we want it nearer. So there's something in that. I really like that. I'll be interested to see where you go with that. And communities uh, were, were interesting in, um, I guess, what you were talking about, about the togetherness, because they feel more like you opt into those. You find a common, I don't know, ideology, political schema, uh, professional practice area, and you kind of coalesce with people who've got that. But they're probably really different, different age, different demographic and all that kind of thing. How do you see difference in the whole sense of fortitude? Is that a really important factor? Or do you find people are more comfortable with kind of homogeneity, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting that. It's, it's sometimes it's described as um, bonding capital and bridging capital. Ah. So so bonding capital is um, you and I are massively into the same music yeah. or we yeah. both got Vespers and yeah. we love... Yeah. And it's an expression of who we are. Mm. And and most of us recognise bonding capital in that those moments where you sit down next to someone at a party mm. and within a minute you've found that you're both into the same films and so you talk excitedly all night. Really easy for you to do. Bridging capital is something that often brings strangers together. Supporting Man United might be an example of of where people who've like very demographically and yeah. um, eth uh, uh, ethnically different, but like okay, well, yeah. and um, uh, you know, it's, so something that maybe can span our diversity in right. a similar way. Yeah. What you generally find is that people who find themselves with people who are very similar to them, you can, yeah. that homogeneity normally yeah. correlates with having a lot of things in common. Yeah. And so it's very easy to do it. Teams that have those sort of diverse yeah. elements to them, yeah. um, generally they're a little bit more uncomfortable, yeah. but they normally, you, yeah. the strength that comes from them is often uh, yeah. more intense. I can see that. And I think there's some research, isn't there, that talks about the more successful leadership teams are ones with diversity yeah. in all sorts of regards. Um, and I guess you touched on something about levels of comfort, maybe even conflict. In your research and perhaps even in, in looking at fortitude, where does conflict, conflict play a part in it? Is it essential or do we find a different way to deal with conflict in that situation? Yeah. I mean, it, all of it, I guess, comes down to that psychological safety that we're right. all seeking, isn't it? You know, back, just looking very briefly um, at my former employers, mm. the, one of the, some of the mistakes Elon Musk has made and, you know, mm. uh, how pathetic of me as no one to, to criticise a multi-billionaire. Um, but one of the things he initially did was that by, he, he announced, okay, we're going to change a couple of the features, verification process, mm -hmm. um, and the people working on it have got 10 days to do it or I'm going to fire them. Mm. Now, um, what this does is that even 
the people who are working their best. And and right now, there's a lot of people who've stayed there. Mm. You know, about about um about sixty percent of the workforce has definitely left. But a lot of the people who are staying there are visa tied. Right. You know, they have moved to the US or moved to the UK. Mm. They've got a visa that depends on it. Right. So these people, you're never going to get people working harder because their their whole mm. Livelihood, or I know someone whose wife's got cancer, and she's he's working there because yeah. his healthcare depends on it. Right. And so these people, they're never going to work harder than no. this. They, yeah. You know, you can't doubt their commitment to the job, but the fear of being fired if you don't deliver any creates a really toxic environment. You know, we saw this in VW Dieselgate. I don't know if you remember mm. that that case there, mm. where um, the old regime there used to make these threats to people, you've got six weeks to deal with this or I'm going to fire you. And what happened in that case is Amy Edmondson went through like the history of what happened in VWDs, okay? And she said, as far as she could tell, there was never an order for anyone to to fake these tests. Mm. But what happened was an order came from up high, our engines better pass these emissions tests or you're going to be fired. And so what happens is people are presented with this choice. Okay, well, the engine's not going to pass it. The engine's not my work. But if we create this system where the car goes into a clean mode when it's being tested, and you can kind of mm. at least empathise mm. with the fearful state that people yeah. found themselves in. Yeah. So Elon Musk saying to people, mm. listen, you better do this or you're going to be fired. Someone's immediately thinking, I don't want my wife to lose her treatment. I don't want to be forced mm. to go back to to where I've come from, I'm going to work mm. my... And so um, I think, you know, the, the most critical thing you talked about there is that conflict, when it's combined with psychological safety, can yep. be incredibly healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, someone saying to Elon, can't be done. Yeah. But I think mm-hmm. if you give me the benefit of doubt, I think I can do this for you. Mm. But conflict with combined with power mm. is... Mm. Well, it's Pretty toxic combination. Yeah. So I think that's it. I, w- I would say, you know, organizations <laughs> can yeah. create an environment where yeah. conflict can be a really productive thing. Yeah. You know, I've always enjoyed working in a place where you sort of, you encourage people to disagree mm. because normally good stuff comes from it. Yeah. And and you get out of the group think and you actually get people building on yeah. things. So you get all those good things. And I think that's another sign of people saying, I've got your back by saying, if you want to publish that, I'm telling you now, that could backfire. Yeah. So I'm urging you to rethink that because I've got your back. Yeah. Not because I want to show how clever I am with grammar or something. Mm. Right? So there's a motive, isn't there, behind it? Yeah. Um, jokingly, in preparing for this, I, I, I wanted to think about the future for you and I, I, I ordained you as the next World Economic Forum president. Because uh, I thought, why not? Because <laughs> you've got, you <laughs> got, you got a broad when span, lots of people listen to you. And I think at the heart of what you're trying to do is what I think the World Economic Forum stands for, really, which is to coalesce the best of what we've got to help people um, sort of learn. So if you did have that kind of remit, if somebody said, right, Bruce, we would like to get you to help us with the kind of charter for good. I mean, what kind of things would you you urge people to do? And I know you're not a sort of dominant thinking sort, but you would create incentivized um, frames, perhaps, for people to start playing in. What kind of stuff would you would you start to introduce? Yeah, gosh, I mean, mm. thank you very much it's for my a big new one, job, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I think that we're in such an inspiring moment right now. Where look, you know, if we look at the world of work, um, what we found was that the we recognise now that we're in a monoculture that we didn't recognise we're mm. in. That people went to a job and it was non-negotiable. You went to a job, it was nine o'clock, six o'clock, 
five days a week at the place that where they interviewed you. It wasn't even discussed, you know. Mm. Someone said, I've got a new job. You didn't say where, where exactly. you're going to be working, yeah. how many days a week. And so we've broken out of that monoculture and mm. it's really inspiring because we can start looking at things in a different way. Yeah. You know, simultaneously, the issue of climate change, the whole solution is there for us. Like, the, you know, the... The economics of green energy now is cheaper than mm. any other energy. And so the only barriers right now in the world, reinventing the world of work, reinventing the economics of the economy, are how quickly we're willing to embrace change mm. and execute. Mm. So for an optimist, it's a really mm. powerful moment. You know, for a pessimist, you worry that we're going to pass up these, yeah. these opportunities. And so I think, you know, for me, it's about right now, it's about trying to have um, evidence-based discussions about what we're doing and how we're doing it. You know, mm. the world of remote working, mm. you chat to some people and they are so inspired about how it makes work more accessible, yeah. how it makes work more for, for people we, who, who don't have the ability to travel into an office yeah. every day yeah. or for working parents or for yeah. people who've got care responsibilities. And we're presented with so many opportunities yeah. um, by the way we're doing things right now, but we're so locked in the mental models that we had previously. I think mm. that'd be the critical thing for me, mm. evidence-led exploration of mm. these opportunities. I think there'll be a lot of people listening to this who are in the people profession and, and, and HR more generally who would absolutely back you on that one and also recognise the urge to be evidence-led because we've been living in lots of cycles of hype, haven't we? Mm. Uh, so, I mean, if I go back to robots taking our jobs type rhetoric, which was perhaps, you know, sort of five, ten years ago, I think we'll still see that, won't we? We will still see automation taking away some of the work that we have to do. But I've always erred on the side of, but that means we can level up the quality and high-touch human interaction that we're going to have, education, care, they all need attention, don't they? So I don't see a shortage of work, do you? N most no. definitely I don't. Most definitely I don't. I mean, look, you know, the issue of the British economy right now is a shortage exactly. of, of people. Exactly. I think it's going to surprise us, though. Mm. You know, this year, probably if there's one thing that's come out of nowhere that's intriguing is all of these AI art generators, DALI oh, yeah. and things mm. like that, and, and you know, so many blog posts now use Dali art yeah. and um, it's dazzling to look at mm. because it's evolving, it's changing very quickly. I think it's creativity <laughs> creativity that we hadn't anticipated yeah. and it starts giving you a perspective of what AI might do. So, you know, yeah. typing in, draw me, you know, a, a bird doing yeah. something comic and it performs yeah. four options of it in 30 yeah. seconds is dazzling yeah. as soon as it starts doing that in text yeah. i think we're going to start realizing that, that those hours we spent getting a press release right or yeah. those hours we spent getting a document right mm. potentially we're going to see ai coming and yeah. tightening up our language far quicker than we yeah. thought um so big opportunities for mm. I, i'm you know i think there's big these big scope for us to apply those things in probably unexpected ways yeah and I just don't see how we're going to regenerate the planet's natural resources if we don't harness yeah. some of that tech, right? Uh, you got me thinking about something very interesting there in the sense of uh, a virtual world where you can like replicate, rehearse, model and try things out. Where do you sit on the metaverse kind of discussions that are coming through at the moment? Because there's, again, quite a lot of hype and there's quite a lot of sort of, shall we say, um, almost um, amusing takes on on the metaverse and what it might play as a part in the future 
Yeah. Um, if you look at the good applications of that technology that's bringing people together right now, it's principally gaming. Yeah. So people who will have a game of Call, and, <laughs> Call, Call of Duty, Duty or a game of FIFA with their mates and chat. And, yeah. and, you know, certainly there's a big cohort of Gen Z kids who are very, very comfortable with that. It's in that version, it's principally phone calls, right? It's it's principally yeah. voice communication. Yeah. Um, most of what makes the magic of events and makes the magic of being connected with other human beings is more governed by understanding that we're in synchrony with each other yeah. and being in a room. Mm. And, you know, so that is mm. that, that thing that's just mm. in our DNA, yeah. that looking in someone's eyes yeah, exactly. and feeling understood yeah. or looking in someone's eyes and feeling that they understand you, yeah. uh, you and it's reciprocated. Yeah. I think we're going to struggle with that in, yeah. in the metaverse, I, in the sense that, I don't think we're going to be able to replicate that in-person effect no. in the next few years. No. And do we need to? Yeah, exactly that. And, and, and I'm sort of sharing the same sort of view. Somebody predicted top 10 things in HR, Metaverse was on it. I'm like, I don't know about you and who you're talking to. Nobody in HR is telling me the Metaverse yeah. is important. So, And I think what's more important is what I discovered recently when we asked what future skills would people really like to see us focus on? Empathy, compassion, kindness, listening. It was all the human things, Bruce. So I think you're absolutely right. I depending see, on, depend, go on. No, go on. Depending on when you bought your last TV, yeah. do you remember 3D TVs? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like a, a, yeah. a technology that was being heavily yeah. promoted to True. us. And it never happened. No, it didn't. So, you know, sometimes these Same things are wrong. I was just about to say that I think what we're seeing is a technology augmentation to allow us to spend more time doing those human things. And, I, and I'm really, really sort of hopeful of that. So when you are World Economic Forum president, that, <laughs> that's what I'm hoping you'll you'll push through. Um Okay, uh, just as we kind of bring ourselves into wrap up, I mean, uh, I, I, I like where we've gone with this sort of mental adventure here in, I guess, rediscovering the sense of what work is all about and uh, what we are as human beings within that, but with each other. I think mm. there's something strong in there. If there's a few things you would like to urge people who are listening to this podcast to do and perhaps look up and start playing with and start introducing, I mean, is there a kind of three things Bruce Daisley said would see you right type thing to close us off? Uh, look, you know, the stuff that I probably find myself most inspired by yeah. um, is a social scientist called Alex Haslam. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love his work. There's right. a couple of uh, YouTube clips by him. And what he does very powerfully, you know, I've spoken today about how resilience, fortitude is yeah. the strength we draw from each other. Haslam is sort of the man whose research will... Wow will prove that to you beyond any doubt. Um, and so, you know, I, nice. I, uh, I, you know I, I find his work dazzling. He, there's a couple of his lectures online. He's always worth checking out. Um, there's another person who I love the work of, who's a guy called Alex Pentland, who's another academic. Mm -hmm. he, what he talks about is he talks about how the power of face-to-face -face conversation is normally the thing that leads to creative breakthroughs wow. and um, achieves sort of these... Uh, these transcendent moments. Yeah. Now, that might be sort of countercultural from where we are right now, that we, we're learning the benefits of remote working. Yeah. But what Alex Pentland at least tells you about is the time you spend with other people, yeah. you should gear it to these face-to-face -face conversations because rather than sitting next to them doing emails, yeah. when you are with them, you know, put your in-the-office yeah. alert on. Yeah. Get you know, get yourself into in, interactions because that seems to be transformational. Um, so you know, those couple of things I think for me yeah. are the things that I'm most inspired by in terms nice. of 
nice. insight and knowledge. I'm hoping if people are thinking about how do you bring and why do you bring people together, that they've got that in mm. mind, which is that you don't have a screen up, you are doing Absolutely. all those artistic things. So that's nice. Well, thanks for taking us on a journey of art, science and, and, and humanity and the future and the past and everything else, uh, Bruce, as you tend to normally do in the way you write and, and, and the shares. And I just wanted to leave um, with a quote that I think is like really, really sort of summing it up. And I think you wrote it and spoke about it recently when somebody asked you about how, how do you think it's going with Elon Musk and Twitter? You said um, it's like Liz Truss on a hen night, I think you said. So, <laughs> so I think we'll leave people to uh, keep that thought in mind. But thanks as ever, Bruce, for just uh, articulating what I think is in lots of our thoughts and shaping perhaps our view on the world and giving us some hope. So thanks very much. Thank you so much.